This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. This is Under the Weather from the BBC. With me, Claire Nazir and Simon King. In this podcast, we'll be joined by a range of experts as we answer some of weather's most interesting and challenging questions. In this episode... If you cut your emissions, then almost immediately you'll get an improvement in the rainwater quality. But if you've acidified a soil over decades, which of course is what happened, those systems don't just bounce back. Under the weather from the BBC. Whatever happened to acid rain? Well, I'm back now in my grey uniform, high socks, sitting... Behind a wooden desk with an inkwell, do you have those with the lid of the desk that went up and you put all your stuff underneath? No, mm, no. 70s, not that old, sorry. 80s, yeah, year six, Mrs. Gray. And we learned about acid rain then. So, yeah, pretty much the end of the 70s. That was part of our geography course mm. when I was a little newbie. And I, I found it really quite frightening, actually. It was the imagery more than anything of forests which looked like they'd been stung or scorched by acid. And dead fish. Dead fish, you know, lakes where you couldn't dive into because they were polluted. Mm. So it was quite a lot of scaremongering, but obviously a reality at the time. Yeah, so for me, it was in the 80s uh, at school mm. again. We, You know, it was a big environmental problem. One of our other episodes, which was, uh, you know, about the ozone hole, it was about that time, wasn't it, when... My geography lessons were about the ozone hole and about acid rain. So it was really big back in the day. Um, But do you know what? I can't even think now when the last time I heard the term acid rain. It literally must have been at school. Mm, It's something which doesn't create headlines anymore. Not like global warming, a sea level rise. So this is the question we want to answer is, Mm. whatever happened to acid rain? Is it still a problem? I get, I'm guessing it's not because we may have heard about it more. I think it's probably more of a global problem nowadays. And with industrialisation, yeah. that's what happens. We've got to a point where we've gone, right, actually, we've got other issues now. We're actually polluting our air in different ways. Let's talk about the hydrological cycle a little, yeah. little bit here. Let's just talk about the process of what, you know, what, you know very, very briefly, what is acid rain? So pollution... And in the days of acid rain, it was uh, sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide. They were taken up into the atmosphere and they were dissolved with with rainwater. And then that cloud would then move away with the winds and then it would just rain with that acidity and it would dump it. On the, on the lakes, the rivers, the ground, and that's what acid rain is. And the hydrological cycle, obviously, is a closed system, so it, it cycles. Yeah, so it, 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 it recycles around. as well, so mm. it takes it somewhere else. So it may have been in the atmosphere, then it lands somewhere else. And in fact, when we get really bad pollution days here nowadays, we're looking for that day where the wind picks up or the rain comes, because it does clean the air. But where does that pollution go? So let's go back to your uh, schoolgirl days, yeah. that you're behind your wooden desk, your mm-hmm. inkwell. Did mm-hmm. you have a quill as well? Or is that a bit too far, back? Bit too far back? Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a mullet, I think, at some point. You know, those 80s, they were bad fashion oh, days. I, I went through the curtain stage yeah. when I was at school. So let's go back to school mm-hmm. and let's find out what's happened to acid rain. Uh, so we're going to speak to Professor Chris Evans from the Centre of Ecology and Hydrology. And Chris, can I call you Chris or is it Professor Evans? Uh, no, definitely Chris. <laughs> okay. Whatever happened to acid rain? I mean, the first thing to say is that pretty much all rain is, is acid. Acid, and that's because 
um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere dissolves a little bit into rain, creates carbonic acid. So naturally, rain has a pH of about five and a half, which is less than neutral, which is about seven. Um, but what changed with acid rain was that we started um, adding pollutants to the atmosphere, which also dissolved into rain, so creating sulfuric acid and nitric acid. And so the pH of the rain went down to, well, it depended where you were, but in the order of about four or, or even less. So it's, it doesn't sound like a huge amount, but that's already 10 to 100 times more acidity than, than should naturally be there. And where did these um, pollutants come from? Mostly from coal burning, actually. So particularly the sulphur. So when coal was formed a long time ago, um, a few percent of the stuff that forms coal is actually sulphur or sulphur compounds. So when you burn the coal, you release that as sulfur dioxide that goes to the atmosphere. It reacts in the rain to create the sulfuric acid. So that's really been the biggest cause of acid rain. But at the same time, we've also been putting nitrogen pollutants into the atmosphere and they come a little bit from coal burning, but also from vehicle exhaust. So you'll have heard recently quite a bit, I guess, about nitrogen oxides as a source of air pollution in cities. And that's the same stuff. It's coming out the exhaust of cars and ammonium, which comes from mainly from fertilizers and, and livestock. So it's an agricultural pollutant. And again, that gets into the atmosphere, reacts in the rain. So back in the 70s and 80s, we had a lot of coal burning power stations dotted right across the UK. The cars at the time didn't have catalytic converters. They weren't as clean as many of the cars. I'm not saying they all are, because obviously diesel is still a big problem. And so this sort of pretty much escalated, I presume, through the 50s and 60s. Is that correct? Yeah, it goes right back, really. Um, the sulphur pollution really kicked off with the Industrial Revolution, so right back in the you know, mid-19th century or earlier, when people started using coal as a, as a fuel source. So there was a chap called um, Robert Angus Smith, who's known as the father of acid rain. And he was a Scottish chemist who was working in Manchester as a, as a chemist, doing various things. And, and he realized something was a bit awry with the rainwater and he did a lot of analyses way back then and, and realized it was it was linked to what was going on it was essentially pollution was there any evidence at that time that there like physical or visible evidence that this was having an effect on the environment or was it just an off chance that he was collecting rainwater and putting litmus paper in it and testing it yeah I, I think he was partly interested in in sort of health issues at the time um, so i don't think anyone was too worried about what was going on on the on the hills or in the lakes or rivers nearby. In that time, was it a UK-wide problem? Because I can imagine you've got these coal-fired power stations releasing these pollutants and the cars releasing these pollutants. Was the acidity that they were finding uniform across many areas? It very much started out in the industrial area. So, you know, like the, the big northern cities um, around Glasgow and the South Wales coalfield and, and so on. And I think the first consequence of that was really they were they were burning you know small industrial units right in the city so they had a lot of issues with with health I think there were kids in Glasgow getting rickets because they just never saw the sun and so that was recognized but the response to that was to build bigger chimneys and try to get the smoke and all the pollutants a bit out of the city so that fixed the human health problem but what it did was to move some of the environmental problems a bit further downwind so then you started to see problems in areas like the Pennines in South Wales or all the Welsh mountains. If you've got this rain that's turned acidic, I'm, I'm guessing that nature doesn't deal with that very well. 
once the rain hits the ground, goes into the water table, into the rivers, into the ecosystems? What, what are the consequences of acid rain that we saw? It depends a lot where you are. If you've got limestone, for example, or chalky soils, then actually the, the soil can deal with it pretty much forever because that acid just comes down, it reacts with the alkaline soil and just neutralizes it. So, so in those areas, there's never been much of a problem. The real problems have arisen where you've got acidic rocks like granite um, and thin acidic soils like peatlands, uh, and those are much more vulnerable. So where the acid rain hits those, the, the, the soil can't buffer it away, and then it makes its way through the soil, it acidifies the soil, and then it gets out into the, into the rivers. In the 60s, 70s, when this really became an issue was when the Scandinavians started getting hit by it, and that was actually a lot of the pollution was coming from from the UK because of our prevailing wind directions. At yeah, the and south, then the people southwesterly taking it. Yeah, the British ambassador to Norway complained to the government there because the weather weather service always described bad weather as coming from the UK. And he didn't think that was very good for the tourist Actually, industry. Actually, we, we always blame the French when we get poor air pollution yeah, do, when yeah, it's the southeasterly. Yeah. Yeah. And it is true, we were exporting pollution to them. There was a, an, another nice story about um, really the early days of, of the politicians beginning to grapple with this when the, the Norwegians were getting very upset because they're, they're, they basically got very rocky, thin soils and, and their systems were getting hit really hard. And I don't think the British necessarily believed that this had anything to do with them. So the... Norwegian Prime Minister at the time invited Margaret Thatcher over there to, to have a look at some of the experiments they were doing. And it was, it was an experiment. It was right when I think it was my first field trip overseas was to visit this giant greenhouse they'd put on top of a mountain. And they were basically using this greenhouse to catch all the polluted rain coming in. And then they were putting in clean rain underneath and showing how much difference that was making to, to the water quality and the, and the biota. And actually, Margaret Thatcher is part of the, the story when it comes to how we combated acid rain. Yeah, Because, so. yeah, you know, well done her, because she did launch a, a huge bid to cut sulphur emissions. Well, she was, a, she was a chemist by training, so I think she understood it. Right. A little bit. Wow. I mean, the, yeah. the story this chap who worked on this site told me was that she was actually busy telling them that there was no way all this pollution could be coming from the UK. And then while they were walking around the site, they found a, a burst balloon lying on the ground. And <laughs> yeah. Label on the site saying it had come from a school in York. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So his story, he, he liked mm. to claim that this was what persuaded her to address acid rain. The best thing about this story really is, is that if you look at bar charts, looking back at sulphur emissions over the last, say, 30 years, there's a real decline. Something worked. Policy did work. The emissions were cut. And we're in a very different place to what we were, say, 30 years ago. So before we get to that, can you explain how the ecosystems were disrupted because of acid rain? I presume it's a quite a, a simple analysis, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you're perturbing a system in a way that it's not, not designed to deal with. And, and as I said, it depends very much where you are. But if you've, if you've got sensitive ecosystems, then well, the first thing that happens is you add all that acidity and the sulphur and also the nitrogen to the, to the soil uh, some soils can sort of absorb some of that and some just let it go straight through so it acidifies the soil that can affect the plants um going back to that area near manchester with the pennines the 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 pollution actually killed a lot of the sphagnum mosses that were growing up on the moors and they're still not really back even now so that had a huge effect it caused sort of exposure of bare peat erosion if you go up on places like Bleaklow and Kinderscout, you'll still see the after effects of that now with all these eroded landscapes that people are now trying to restore. Uh, and then if, if 
the sulfur and the nitrogen were able to get through into the into the water courses they took some of the acidity with them but the thing that really damaged the system was that they would pick up aluminium from the soil as they went through and that's actually toxic to fish it get, I don't ask me how exactly but it gets into their gills and, and ultimately if it's high enough it kills them uh, it does similar things to some of the insect species that live in stream water which are also food for other things so as you say it's, it's not the toxicity necessarily getting into the food chain but the if you take out some of the species then that has knock-on effects. Margaret Thatcher then went ahead and she did something about this. When did we start to see improvements in acid rain? Well, the the process of these these pollutants travelling through the atmosphere is really quite quick. So it's a matter of days that they're there. So if you if you cut your emissions, then almost immediately you'll get an improvement in the in the rainwater quality. So that's more or less instantaneous. But if, for example, you've you've acidified a, a soil over decades which of course is what happened those systems don't just bounce back because a lot of the things like calcium that were, that were stored in the soil over over thousands of years from from mineral weathering those, those are gone or at least depleted so it takes a long time for those systems to to recover and well, part of the work I'm involved in we've been monitoring lakes and streams around the UK since since the late 80s slightly before my time but and that's about 30 years of data now and, and we can see through all of that time these systems have been coming back and they're still coming back now so you're still so you're still seeing now even today the consequences of acid yeah rain, there's yeah. very much a legacy effect and you know and, and even when the chemistry comes back if you've if you've killed all your salmon and trout for example then it will be a while before they can work their way back up the the river system to to re-establish. So it, it's a slow process. I mean, there's been a lot of changes in the energy mix um, through the last few decades. So even 10 years ago, um, I was just reading a white paper in 2007, it's called Meeting the Energy Challenge, and 40% of our energy came from gas, 14% came from coal, and nuclear was 3%. Fast forward 10 years, and it was a record low for coal production, that was 2.1%. So we are certainly going in the right direction, but that's not the case elsewhere in the world. No, that's right. So, I mean, the, the coal story is really that it was obviously our main energy source back in the 70s and 80s. Um, there were ways that they were actually cleaning up the emissions from the, from the stacks as well. So they were taking some of the sulfur pollution out. But then, of course, what's happened since is that we've just cut coal more or less out of the energy mix, partly for climate change reasons and partly for other reasons so really it's gone here but yeah you're right at the same time countries like China and India have been ramping up their coal burning enormously and I, I was just reading actually that in China they've actually been quite successful now in this this a few years ago we were all talking about how China was the next big acid rain problem and they do still have quite high sulfur levels but actually India is well on the way to overtaking them now. Well India's got like um, I think it's 60% of their energy comes from coal power stations and obviously with the monsoon every year which starts around springtime and then pushes up and reaches a peak around June July that's sort of four or five months where all this all these pollutants are being rained out and land on on the surface of India and in the river systems and agriculture, etc. So it must be a huge problem there. I mean, they've got one billion people, for goodness sake. Yeah, it's a good question, actually. It depends, as I said, very much on the sensitivity of the soils. And I'm not sure that a lot of India, because it's got so much dust and, and you know, quite, quite rich soils, I suspect a lot of it isn't particularly sensitive, or at least it's not the biggest of their problems, shall we say. But I presume also because they're generating so many pollutants from 
cold, prevailing winds going in different directions depending on whether it's the monsoon or not, then this pushes elsewhere, it advex to other parts of the world. No, that's right. And that's really, I think, part of the story of acid rain is that it's, unlike many other environmental problems, it's transboundary. In fact, the, the mechanism that was set up to deal with this was called the UN Convention on Transboundary Air Pollution. It was really the first time that countries had to talk to each other to address an environmental problem. And it's for that reason that if you, you know, some countries are generating the stuff and others are on the receiving end of it. And those countries need to talk together to fix the problem. So it's a bit of a sort of test case for some of the other challenges we're facing now. This is Under the Weather and we are talking to Professor Chris Evans. Now, we've been talking about human-induced pollution, mostly through traffic and power stations. But obviously there are other ways that acid rain can form and that's in the form of volcanic eruptions. Um, now, that I've read this, and you can, you can correct me if I am wrong, but the worst ever acid rain event was 252 million years ago and that was due to a huge eruption from a volcano which created, and it says in the words which I was reading, vinegar-like acid rain where there was a mass extinction and 90% of species on the planet were wiped out. Certainly in the historical record there's evidence that some of the big volcanic eruptions have had consequences. I think Lackey, the one of the volcanoes in Iceland went up and I think it was called the year without a summer and there were crop failures and fish died in the rivers of Scotland. So, so yeah, these things do happen and a big volcanic eruption can have some quite interesting consequences. So just going forward, I mean, sulphur levels have, have dropped, obviously, from what Margaret Thatcher did. Um, <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't give her too much credit. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I suspect it probably had something to do with the coal unions at the time that it, it suited her quite well to shut down coal burning. But nonetheless, I think it's fair to credit her with having reduced sulphur emissions. Nitrogen oxide is still part of a problem with, with traffic, with cars. Um, yes. And obviously now as well, the... the I'll say the the buzz chemical atmospheric chemistry is CO2, isn't it? Does that have the same sort of effect with acid rain? Does 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 carbon dissolve and mix in with, with rainwater? Well, it does. Um, I mean, it's really part of the natural cycle of things. So, so of course, we're getting slightly more in the in the rainwater than we were. But in in the scheme of things, for for soils and and freshwater, it's not a big issue. It, it that CO2 dissolving in the ocean is the reason that there's an issue with ocean acidification, which is really something very separate from acid rain. But mm. it's the thing that worries people working on coral reefs and, and that kind of thing. So in terms, um, in terms of actual acid rain, you know, that, that big environmental problem that we were talking about in the 70s and 80s, is that fixed then? Should, um, do, do we not have to worry about acid rain anymore? I, th- I think we've been very successful in reducing the sulphur emissions, which was the main cause of things like fish deaths and forest dieback and so on. Uh, the thing that's been much harder to deal with is the nitrogen, and that's because it's really quite integral to so much of what we do, like agriculture and driving cars, and, and even with catalytic converters and so on, you, you still get NOx pre-produced. So whereas I think in the UK, sulphur emissions have gone down by about 90% in the last couple of decades, it's 
it's nowhere near that for nitrogen. I mean, even um, in 2018 so far, the legal limit for NOx has been breached a number of times and the UK government's been taken to court for it. So obviously we yeah, still are right. addressing that problem and there will yeah. still be a knock-on effect when it comes to our environment, whether it's breathing in those mm. fumes or in the form of um, some sort of adulterated rain. Yeah, that's right. I think the, the really tough one's actually ammonium because it's it's coming from livestock and, and how do you control emissions from livestock is, is difficult. So they've hardly managed to shift that down at all despite considerable effort. And it can have some quite difficult consequences because if you're putting a lot of extra nitrogen, particularly onto sort of natural vegetation, which is adapted to having very, very low nutrient levels, and you keep piling it on year on year on year, eventually you'll create a sort of you effectively fertilize that landscape and what we think is happening over a very sort of gradual period is that a lot of the sort of specialist plants you'd, you'd see in for example up in the up in the mountains of sort of being outcompeted by grasses and things like well, nettles a bit lower down so there, there's a sort of loss of biodiversity coming on the back of this nitrogen pollution which is it's so slow it's kind of hard to see but there's pretty good evidence that it's happening. And so we're gradually denuding some of our upland landscapes. Oh, it's really interesting, actually. And to be honest, when we started thinking about this subject, there was a bit of a blank for me because, like Simon said, we studied it in the 80s and then it all went away. Yes, yeah. it did. Yeah, and it's actually, funny, my... it's a positive story in a lot of respects for us in the UK. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's funny, my kids still study at school. Oh, really? Surprises. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's still in the curriculum, apparently, or at least they're studying it. And when I tell them I'm an expert on it, they just laugh. <laughs> yeah, I have the same effect on my daughter. Actually. So, Dad, could you come into school and tell us about acid rain? <laughs> so, what exactly are you doing now in terms of your research into this? Well, I, I mean, I've, I suppose you'd say I diversified. So, a lot of the work I was doing actually on acid rain, it, it it led into a slightly different area in the one of the consequences of acid rain, which I don't think was particularly expected, uh, was that it made the water run clearer than it used to. So as all that acidity was dropping onto the soil, it was making organic matter less soluble. And the effectively all of our lakes and streams got clearer. So they actually sort of looked nicer, you, you could say. Right. Uh, that turned out to be quite good news for the water companies because it cost them a lot less to, to clean to up. treat yeah. water than it does to, to treat brown, organic-rich water. And as we've cleaned up the sulphur pollution, what we've seen is that all of our lakes and rivers have got quite a lot browner. And it's, it, the Swedes call it brownification, and um, new, new scientists called it global browning a few years ago, which is a bit of an exaggeration and hard to take seriously. But it's a real problem for them. So the water companies are having to deal with this this browner water with all the treatment costs that come with that. So that's a lot of what I do now is trying to understand how that mechanism works and whether there are things we can do to mitigate it. Presumably by not adding sulfuric acid into yeah, water, yeah, into the water. Yeah. One solution would be to fire up all the coal-fired power stations again, but <laughs> yeah. I don't think... We don't want to go down, down that road. Either, either we look at things to do with land management, which is the other part of what I do, and, and you know whether there are things we can change about conditions of things like peatlands which generate this brown water to, to try to reduce it and, and if we can't then we need to understand that so that they can at least design their treatment infrastructure in a way that's sort of future-proofed against what's happening. That sounds really interesting. Chris thank you very much indeed for your time it's been very thoughtful and insightful. Thanks very much interesting to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening to Under the Weather from BBC Radio. If you've enjoyed the podcast please leave us a review under the Weather was presented by me, Simon King and Claire Nazir and was produced by Ronan Breen and Stuart Morgan. 
next time on Under the Weather. We try and not get ourselves into situations like that. We're not interested in getting too close to the tornado. Some people are, but, you know, more interested in looking at the, the storm as a whole. And so we, we were, we're in the circulation, at the edge of the circulation, for about five minutes or so as we as we sped out of there. And um, you could hardly actually see anything, really, just this big, massive cloud at the ground level. Subscribe to Under the Weather now for a new episode every Monday.